I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, everybody. We're going to uh, finish up the Shema, hopefully, today. Thank you so much for coming with me on this journey. As we know, this is a very important prayer. It is one of the main prayers of the Jewish people. It's um, something that we say in the morning when we wake up, when we go to sleep at night. And of course, unfortunately, it's been the words on the lips of many martyrs throughout Jewish history. And even at our la- in our last moments, we're supposed to say the Shema, affirming our belief in Hashem, in the one God. I heard a nice idea because I don't think I put it forth as strongly, but when we say Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, we talked about the idea that we talk about two different aspects of God, right? Hashem, who is the God of compassion, of mercy. And then we say Elokeinu, which is the name of God, which is Elohim, which is the God of judgment and the God of justice. But we end by saying Hashem Echad, meaning that the, that both are part of the God of compassion. In other words, the compassionate God is, is the one that rules and part of, and, and, and together with his compassion is the fact that he is also the God of judgment. But compassion is what is the overwhelming um, idea, so to speak, that is in the forefront of understanding Hashem. The fact that he lets the world continue, the fact that he allows us to do tshuva, these are all parts of his compassion, even as we experience consequences, reward and punishment for our behavior, because of course we want a God who is also the God of justice and who uh, creates accountability and responsibility, um, you know, that, that each person has to be accountable and responsible for their actions. Otherwise, you know, what is this God worth if he's constantly looking away and not really um, training us or caring about what we do? <clears throat> the fact that he cares about what we do and punishes and rewards shows his tremendous love for us and his tremendous um, and it's his way of letting us know how important we are and how much what we do really, really matters. Okay, we have to believe this. You know, uh, the thing is, is as, uh, you know, Hashem believes in us. The, sorry, we believe in Hashem, but we have to also believe in ourselves and recognize how important each one of us is to Hashem. Okay, so we're continuing with the third paragraph. We were talking about the tzitzits. I asked my husband this week, you can ask your husband, I said, when you look at the end of the tzitzit, do you think about the fact that the body is temporary? Because we said that the end of the tzitzit are supposed to remind a person that the material comes to an end. So he just kind of looked at me like, not really. But anyway, but you know, we know the inner meaning of the tzitzit. Now we said too, that the tzitzit actually can save a person from desires. I looked back at that story, which was by about uh, Elazar ben Durdaya, this man that traveled over many seas and paid tremendous amount of gold to be able to have his time with this famous prostitute. 
and she had these seven gold beds and uh, all kinds of interesting things. And of course, we said that as he was climbing the ladder to get there after his, you know, immense amount of money that he spent and the time that it took to get there, his sitsis slapped him in the face and he started to climb down. And of course, she was so horrified but it made her also wake up. She said to him, what blemish did you see in me that you know, you know, you invested so much and now you're climbing down the ladder. And he said, no, no, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. He said, it's just that, you know, the God above me just reminded me with my tzitzit that this is not where I'm supposed to be. So I looked back into the story in different places and it said, not only did she convert, but they ended up getting married. And there's even a uh, explanation of her beds and the seven beds and the whole visual of her, the way her beds were set up, of actually having a relationship to tzitzits, to the knots of the tzitzits and the ties of the, the way the tzitzits are tied. And also it's an idea that we're going to explore today, which is the idea, interestingly, I think I've said this in other classes, but the same word kadosh holiness, right, Kedusha, if you change the vowels underneath Kedusha, you can read the word Kedesha, which actually means a prostitute, okay, so what the, uh, what I read about this story is that that same bed with the seven levels of gold and all of these allusions to tzitzits and the knots or whatever. I'm not, I don't want to go into it because it sounded, was very esoteric, but it was very interesting that there was a connection. That same bed ends up becoming their wedding bed, right? So the idea is, is that in Judaism, we don't say anything is bad. We say that everything can be channeled for good. So that same bed that could have been the place of an adulterous, illicit, anti-Kadosh relationship becomes the place where this woman does tshuva, where he does tshuva. She's so amazed by his uh, ability to withstand temptation because of this God that she converts and they end up, you know, becoming married and using that bed for holiness because we say that the holiest place in a person's home is the bedroom, right? Because wherever there is um, the opportunity for something to become debased, to the extent that it can be become debased, and we know obviously that sexual temptations are the greatest um, source of debasement, right? That it has an equal ability to be holy. So, you know, the farther it falls, the higher it, it climbs. And so the holiest place, what we call the holy of holies in a Jewish home is actually the bedroom, right? Where, you know, in other religions, they see that as a necessary evil. We don't see it as a necessary evil. You know, Adam was tempted by Eve, the evil woman. Judaism says, no, this is the holiest act that two human beings can partake in, right? It's God willing to create harmony and intimacy and the glue that keeps a relationship together and of course it creates children in the world who are created in purity so so just and i just wanted to go back to that story to give it a little bit more fleshing out at what an incredible uh story it is so we said that um so if we go on uh, you know the beginning of the third paragraph is talking all about the tzitzits how if you look at them 
It will help you remember all of the mitzvahs because we said the tzitzis remind you that you're uh, finite, right? The white of the tzitzis is the body. The little blue string is supposed to remind you of the spiritual part of you, right? When you see the blue, it reminds you of the ocean and then you'll look up to the sky and you'll remember Hashem. But basically they're there to, you know, keep you on the right track. And whenever you look at them, you'll remember the mitzvah of Hashem and you'll do them. And then the next part goes on and it says, Velo sasuru And you won't go after. You shouldn't explore after your heart and your eyes, right? Asher atem zonim after which you will stray, you will, because you will stray after them. So don't go after your heart. And after your eyes, because those are basically going to lead you astray. So it's interesting. What is the place where we see this word taturu, to not go? So in Hebrew, modern Hebrew, latur means to tour, right? To tour around. And that's actually, it comes from the Parsha Shalach in the Chumash with the whole episode of the spies. If you remember the 12 spies asked Moshe, you know, before we go into this land, we want to go check it out. And the language that's used over and over again is this Latour. These men went that Moshe sent them Latour et Ha'aretz, to go and spy out the land, to go take a look at it, right? Again, and Moshe sent them to tour, to spy it out, to look around with their eyes, right? And anyway, and, and that word Latour comes up over and over again. And of course, then they go, they tell about where they went. And we know the end of the story is they come back with this horrible report. They speak, you know, Lush and Hara about the land of Israel, which of course was their destined land from the time of Lech Lecha, when God tells Abraham, I'm going to take you to this land, and this is where you will be a people, and this is where you will flourish. And of course, we know the end of the story. They come back, they give this evil report, they get everybody all panicked. And unfortunately, that's where Tisha B'Av happens. God says, you know, you cried for nothing, and now I'm going to give you something to cry about, right, for, for a long time until you get the chance again, you know, to go in and build the Beit HaMikdash. So anyway, the, the, this is the source. And basically their sin was they looked at the land with their eyes. Their eyes led them astray because the eye sees externals, right? And the idea of um, the, the uh, tzitzit, again, is this idea that God knows that we need help battling our physical drives and becoming deeper and more connected to a spiritual way of looking at things. And the mitzvahs, but the mitzvahs only help those who want to be helped, right? You can be doing all the mitzvahs. You can be having all the external trappings of looking like a religious person. Sorry, let me just meet this person. Um, okay. All right. So, sorry, a <laughs> little bit of music. Um, so, yeah, we can, we can do everything, but 
the question is if it's if you're if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing if your heart's not in it if you're not asking Hashem I you know to help me overcome my superficial way of seeing things or the drives that drive me that I know are not proper then the mitzvahs can only help those who want to be helped so again the idea of not going after your eyes is that your eyes see something appealing and your heart starts to fantasize about it and then we want it isn't that the way advertising works right the first thing is your eyes see it and then your heart wants it you know you can't live without this how could you and so it's the eye that begins the whole process now, the tzitzit that a man wears are supposed to interfere with the intensity of that process. Because we know in certain ways, I mean, I know they argue this today, but men do have stronger libidos generally than women, unless they've been completely desensitized, emasculated, and feminized. They are in our society today, right? Um, because the feminist movement has been so powerful of letting them know we don't need you and we're better than you. So, you know, whatever, we're not going into that. But, you know, generally speaking, a man should have this kind of libido because that's what keeps the uh, human species pro propagating and you know families being whatever the families that Hashem envisioned with a man and a woman etc um, but um, so so basically the tzitzits are supposed to help a man and interfere with the intensity again the word intensity which is why I'm expressing the idea that men have a more difficult time when they see something especially a beautiful woman it's very, very difficult. It's supposed to interfere with the intensity of that process. So Rashi says we have two limbs that make us travel. Now you would think he's talking about our two legs, but he says it's our eyes and our hearts. So this idea of using the word Latour, right, in the Shema is, you know, in the in the Chumash, it's they were traveling around the land of Israel, spying it out. But he uses the, the use of the word is saying that the eyes and the hearts are the parts of us that make us travel most. And basically what, what, the, what the Shema is telling us is not to be seduced by outward appearance, but to be drawn to the inner meaning of things, to train yourself to focus on the essence of the thing. And that's a challenge that requires discipline. In, in Parsha Shoftim, it starts out by saying, Shoftim v'shotrim titen l'cha b'chol she'arecha, that you should set up police officers and, and, you know, and judges, sorry, judges and police officers, you should set up in all your gates, right? And they're talking physically, you should set up policemen, you should set up a, a you know, a way of being protected. But um, I don't know if it's Rashi, I'm sorry, I didn't really look at it, but the idea there too is that, and I think I've mentioned this, that you should set up police and, and um, judges in the opening of the gates, meaning your eyes, your ears, your mouth, right? That allegorically, each one of us has gates that enter 
so to speak, our brains, our thoughts. So you should police yourself, set up judges for yourself of what's appropriate to look at, to listen to, to allow in, you know, just like you wouldn't allow everything into your home. When you allow things in, obviously the neshama that is your body is just the temple of your soul, as they say, right? So you're allowing things in that are not conducive for the growth and nourishment of your neshama. And again, the tzitzits are supposed to remind us that blue of the tzitzits of the fact that that is the part of us that's really our essence that goes on and on and on and that's connected to Hashem. So, so I was thinking about the upcoming holiday, uh, the Megillah, right? That's exactly what happens at the very beginning, the opening chapter. It describes this incredible party that's going on for 180 days, like a party you've never seen before in terms of its lavishness, in terms of its food. No person drank from the same cup. Every cup was made out of gold. Every cup was different. I mean, the, the description of the palace and of the party goes on and on. And of course, it, the Megillah opens with the fact that the Jewish people are attending this party. So again, it's the idea that the Jewish people have been lured in by the eyes, by the temptation of the eyes. And what happens is, once you see something and you want it, then what the heart refers to is the false ideology that you now create, right? In order to be able to justify what you're doing. So in the Purim story at that time, of course, the justification was, listen, we got to go to this party. You know, we, we, we got to go. We were invited. Everybody else is going. If we don't go, it's going to be terrible for us. We've got to sort of lower ourselves. Now, whether the party was kosher or it wasn't kosher, whether Ahasuerus was making it very, very easy for them to come. I've read both opinions. I'm still not sure whether it, you know, was mahudar me mahudar or it wasn't. But the point is, is that they went because they saw with their eyes and only Mordechai represents the idea of seeing into the inner thing, seeing past what the eye sees and saying, no, it's not a good idea to go to the party, right? Maybe logically you're thinking in terms of cause and effect. And I was just reading about this last night that, you know, if we don't go to the party, it's going to be bad for us. If we do go to the party, it's going to be good for us. According to cause and effect, which is a very superficial way of looking at the world, you do this. But this is the way of Amalek, where it says basically that this follows, this follows that, or the idea that, you know, everything is happenstance. And the Jewish way, what Mordechai was exemplifying, was you have to look deeper. You have to put yourself in Hashem's hands. If you do the right thing, then what would seem to be cause and effect in the logical workings of the world will be interrupted by hashkacha pratis, by divine providence, because you put yourself into Hashem's hands by seeing beyond what looks a certain way and doing what's right. 
And this is basically one of the distinctions between Amalek and the Jewish people, is the Jewish people look at the world in, as hashkacha pratis, and the rest of the world looks at everything as cause and effect. You know, it's the same thing with COVID. I always say, you know, if God wants you to get COVID, you get COVID. I don't care what you do. I don't care how many masks you wear, right? We've heard enough stories about people who sit at a simcha or somewhere, right, between two COVID people, and they don't get it, right? But somebody across the table who wasn't next to the COVID people, they got it, right? I mean, if you try to apply logic to any of this, it, it, it flies in the face of logic in many, many cases. But the point is, is that, is that it says in the Torah, if you want to live in the world of cause and effect, God says, then I will treat you as if the world runs according to cause and effect. But if you want to live in the world of hashkacha pratis, of divine providence, of ein od milvado, of there's nothing but me, and I'm the one who's pulling all the strings, then your life is going to look very different because it won't always be cause and effect. You could do something and the effect will be much greater, let's say positively than you ever imagined because Hashem is deciding the results. We talked about this a lot in Bitachon, right? That we make the effort, but it has nothing to do with the results. And we question, we say, what do you mean? Isn't there cause and effect? Obviously, there's cause and effect. I make an effort and, and, and the result happens. You know, I bake, I put the ingredients in the, in the uh, pot and I stir it up and it, it comes out as, you know, whatever it is I made, hopefully, if I didn't burn it or whatever. I mean, there is such a thing as cause and effect. And yet we live as Jews on a higher level than cause and effect. Because cause and effect could also just be what Amalek opposed in the world, which is it happens. Things happen. And, you know, that's the way it is. And Jews say, no, there's an order to the world. Nothing's random. Everything is hashkacha pratis. And just because I do something, it doesn't necessarily mean the results will be the way I think. And again, going back to the party of Purim, the Jews at the time felt, if we don't do this, we're finished. Whereas Mordechai understood, if you do this, you're finished, right? Because if you don't walk with Hashem, if you believe that the people, the government, Ahasuerus, the Hamans of the world are the ones who have power over you, then that's who I will give the power to. And that's how things will go for you. And of course, that's how they were going in the Megillah until they were able to raise themselves up from that place of imagination, that place of, you know, catering to what seems to be the logical cause and effect and going above that. And that's what saved them when they realized we're in Hashem's hands and Esther in the palace is not going to save us. I don't know if you know this, but this is a really interesting part of the Megillah because some of the Jews were saying, ah, we don't have to worry. Esther's in the palace. We got protectia, right? And then in the middle of the story, when Esther, when they're beginning, you know, Esther's beginning to um, figure out her strategy, she invites both Haman and Ahasuerus to these parties. And the Jews are scratching their heads saying, why are they, why is she inviting Haman to the party, right? 
and and they 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 begin to realize you know what maybe she isn't going to uh, save us maybe she isn't going to use her protectia and that's again when the story turns around and they begin to return to Hashem to recognize that nothing can save them except Hashem so there's so much to the story but I just want to throw it in here with the idea of going with your eyes which is very very difficult and again requires a lot of discipline to look into the the inner um, and of course we have the ability to do this because we have the Torah that tells us what's right and what's wrong and tells us that, you know, even if the situation looks like one where we have to transgress the Torah, we have to know when we're allowed to and when we're not, right? We're not supposed to drive on Shabbos, but obviously we drive on Shabbos when it's life and death. So we have to know when, and of course, the gedolim of the time of Esther were telling the Jews, don't go to the party. For those of you who don't know, this party was actually a celebrating the destruction of the first temple, of that the Jew, which is why the Jews had been exiled to Persia in the first place. And it was actually celebrating the fact that the second temple, which was supposed to be built 70 years after the first temple, had not come to be. Now, Ahasuerus had miscalculated the 70 years. And he had thrown this party basically to celebrate the fact that the Jews would never have a temple again and would not go back to the land of Israel. And this was the party that the Jews were having a good time at. That sorry, Mordechai had studied, would not bow down and would not, you know, so to speak, acquiesce to this vision of things that the Jews at the time had. And these were Jews who were Shomer Torah and Mitzvah, okay? But who really believed that this is the, what, what they have to do in order to survive. Okay, most of the time when we embrace something, it's not because we're looking for the truth, but we're looking to rationalize and justify an inappropriate behavior. This is the idea of the heart. After the eye sees the heart gets involved in creating this whole, you know, story around what we want. You know, it's like that idea of the, the, the um, marksman who shoots, who draws the circle, sorry, who shoots the arrow and then draws the circle around the arrow, right? So when we really want something, we create all this, you know, we, we convince ourselves that, you know, this is the right thing. And of course, this is what they did in the olden days. And we do it still today. We talk about idol worship, you know, but they say that a lot of the idol worship in the olden day, sorry, in ancient times, but you could really apply it to the idols of today, was really giving them permission to engage in immorality. Because a lot of the uh, pagan worship of their idols had all kinds of rituals involved in immorality what we call zenus and we're going to see that word too here it says asher attempt zonin right um don't go after your heart and your eyes that um which you are zonim after them right zonim means that you're straying but the word zenus basically means immorality right in in we say znut znut and I, and I never forgot my husband, 
once told me when he was at Yeshiva University, he had a rabbi who taught them. And I guess this was in the 70s, you know, everybody's hair was long. It was a time of uh, chaos, so to speak, uh, the upturning of old fashioned values or overturning of old fashioned values for the new and, you know, more promiscuity sort of having it, you know, before everybody was repressed, we got to stop being repressed. Everybody's kind of let it all hang out. And of course, this was permission to basically do anything you wanted, right? Uh, Woodstock, you know, it was the whole explosion of this kind of anti-authoritarian, throw out the old repressed, uh, you know, guard of our parents, our grandparents, and, you know, start to really live. And anyway, this rabbi in, in Yeshiva University once uh, said to my husband's class, he said, what they call today progress, what they call today, you know, progress, he says, is just good old fashioned immorality. <laughs> in other words, it's been around forever. It's nothing new. He said, I mean, he used the term, he said, it's just good old fashioned nus is what it is, okay? So don't be deceived that what they think is progress is just good old fashioned, what they've been doing in ancient times, what the pagans did, you know, and they called it idol, they called it gods, it was their gods, but a lot of what their worship involved was was I was uh, immorality. There's even an expression in the Gemara where I think um, one rabbi is basically talking about, you know, how could people worship idols? How could people do this these horrible things? And another rabbi says to him, "Listen, if you had lived in those days, you would have lifted up the." Uh, hem of your robe and ran as quickly as you could to the closest of Vodazara. That's how powerful it was. I mean, that's a whole discussion in itself. The fact that a Vodazara, the desire for a Vodazara as it was back then, disappeared at the same time that the Naveen, the prophets, disappeared. Because at the same time that we had prophets right, who had this incredible relationship with God and were telling the Jewish people what they needed to change, what they needed to fix, what they were doing wrong. This was at the exact same time in Jewish history as the, the temptation for idol worship was extremely powerful. And again, it was, we always have this idea of zed le'umat zed, that there has to be an equal intensity for the bad and for the good. Otherwise, there's no free will right? There's no Bechira. So even though we don't understand it, and even this rabbi who lived in the time said, or lived past the times in the days after the Navi, right? The end of the period of the Navim was basically around the time of Purim. We had our last Navim, and then when this Purim story ends, the period of Navi is done. So again, something to do with idol worship also not being as powerful as it was in those days when the Nevi'im were there, okay? Because there always has to be an equal amount of friction, of conflict, in order for your choice to be worth anything, right? To be of value. Okay, so the eyes... Um, so it says that um, we rationalize and we justify this inappropriate behavior because we listen to our hearts and not our minds. And we know that our hearts in the Shema, we learn this, 
the Cholavavacha is made up of the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatov. So it's a place where we have a battle. And it's only the Seichel, as we talked about in our Taiva class, that can help us and help us look deeply. Okay. Um, another source for tzitzit, interestingly, just for your information, is in the story of Avraham and the king of Sodom. So Avraham fights this war against the king of Sodom. And after defeating him in war, you know, the, the, the king wants to give Avraham a whole bunch of booty of, you know, material stuff from the war. And Avraham refuses to take a shoelace or a thread. And because of this, it says that Avraham was rewarded by God with these two mitzvot of tefillin and tzitzit. Because Avraham in this episode, we know that right? That the deeds of our forefathers um, portend for the future are assigned for the children. So whatever they did, whatever actions they did are for all time. So here we have a, a literal external manifestation of the idea that Sittas and Tefillin were given in reward to Avraham for not taking these mitzvahs, for not taking anything from the king of Sodom. He also didn't want the king of Sodom to afterwards say, I'm the one who made Avraham rich. I'm the one who, right? Because obviously Avraham believed that Hashem is the one who makes him rich, whatever. He didn't want this evil king bragging that it's because of him that Avraham became rich. Okay. So then we go to the next part, right? Um so don't go after your eyes and your heart. Lema antiskaru, in order that you will remember the asitem at komitzvotai, and you will do all of my mitzvot. And if you do this, be the hitem kedoshim lelokechem, then you will be holy to your God. Now the idea of holiness again comes up here. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? Rav Noach Weinberg used to say that you know. Jews would come from all over the world to the Wailing Wall. And they would like, you know, their whole life, they'd hear about the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And it's the holiest place to the Jews, right? And he said, you know, like they'd come and they'd expect like, I'm going to be in the holiest place. Something's going to happen to me, you know, like there's going to be angels flying all over the place. Or, but he used to say this thing like, he used to say, he used to call it bafoof sticks. He made up this word bafoof sticks. And he was saying they thought they'd see bafoof sticks there. And he said, but if you don't know what a bafoof stick is, how are you going to know if you saw it? So he was basically saying that, you know, people don't really know what it means. Like, what is holiness? What, what does it mean? This place is holy. I'm supposed to be holy. You know, in English, it means your socks are holy. They've got a hole in them. Like, you know, how do we understand that word without, first of all, knowing the Hebrew of it? and understanding what the Hebrew teaches us, us. So in a very simple level, Rashi says, if you look at Parsha's Kedoshim, which is all about how a human being is holy, and after each of the uh, forbiddens, right? God says, because I am Hashem, I am God, I am God. Therefore, you should not have, you should, holy means, Rashi says here, it means abstaining from illicit sexual relationships. Because in the Torah, after listing all the immoral relationships, right? And we know there's a lot of them. 
Okay. God says after each one, Ani Hashem, I am God, I am God. And the reason why is because I am God and I'm telling you, this is not good for you. This is not good for the world, right? This is not good for my world. So the Ramban, Nachmanides says, Holy, holiness means, and there's a lot written about it, and of course, everybody has their take on it, but everybody agrees that they're all true. The Ramban says, holiness means practicing, practicing temperance and moderation, even in permissible matters. So we've spoken about this, right? Um, that whatever you're doing, whether it's eating, and this has been coming up in our Taiba class, whether it's going on vacation, whether it's, you know, enjoying something. We're supposed to practice moderation. We don't have to have the best and the most. We don't have to be the most ostentatious. You know, I remember one of my friends in, in New York once said, and I never forgot it because she was from Russia originally. And when she came from Russia to New York, she said, and she was a slim woman and a beautiful woman, but she said, when I came here, I gained 150 pounds because I'd never seen food like this before in my life. And if you know the smorgasbords in New York weddings, okay, they're enough to kill you. I mean, so let alone you came from Russia where you were lining up for potatoes your whole life, right? Or like, even like we were living in Binghamton, New York before we moved to Brooklyn. And also like, there was no, there wasn't even one pizza shop where we were, right? There was a kosher bakery, which was incredible. But you jump from there to Brooklyn, New York. I mean, you're in trouble. <laughs> All of a sudden, it, it, life is a smorgasbord. But the point is, she said, it took me a while until I settled down and I found the balance because it was so overwhelming. And I remember the same woman said, you know, uh, she said, I, she said, you know, when the non-Jews drive down Ocean Parkway, where she said the taxi drivers, you know, and they see the ostentatiousness of the Jewish homes, she said, it must take their eyes out. Now, I don't know, you know, but she was obviously a lot more sensitive to anti-Semitism, also coming from Russia. But the fact that, you know, it's not a mitzvah to be ostentatious. It's not a mitzvah to be over the top because the Jewish um, philosophy is to practice moderation because it shows a control and a rulership over the place of materialism. Again, God created this world for pleasure. Olam chesed yibane. He wants to give us every pleasure. Whatever pleasure is available, the next world we go there, God says, hey, why didn't you enjoy that pleasure I gave you? Enjoy, but not become immersed, not become engulfed so that if I don't have it, I can't live or I need it because I have to make an impression or whatever it is. And that's why the Ramban is famous for saying a person be can become a degenerate with the permission of the Torah. In other words, he can keep all the laws perfectly. You know, he eats glut kosher, the highest standard. But the example they give is he can become a, a glutton with the permission of the Torah, because nowhere does it tell us you can only eat, you know, whatever the latest diet is, right? You have to like, 
the Rambam says you should fill up your plate and then you should take two thirds of it away. And now you're eating what you really need. I mean, as if we could do that, right? But we know that, you know, the plates got bigger in our generation, the portions got bigger. There was never a time when you had all you could eat restaurants, right? Where you don't feel like you're getting your money's worth unless you're sick. If you're Jewish, you know, I got to go home sick. Otherwise, I didn't get my $9.99 worth, you know, it's just, you know. <clears throat> but again, the idea of moderation is a Jewish value. And it's something that we always struggle with. And each one of us differently and in different areas. But this is the idea of Kedusha, because the word Kedusha, holiness, comes from the word Likadesh, which means to separate, to separate oneself. And I just wanted to read you from Rabbi Sachs. Um, okay, I still have some time. Okay, from Rabbi Sachs on what he says about, um, about holiness in Parshas Kedoshi. The idea is that by being distinctive in their behavior, Jews testify to God, just as God stands outside the natural universe, though he acts within it. So the children of Israel, though they live in the world, stand at a calibrated distance from it. They are called on to do so by setting an example of self-restraint, restraint. They should not give way to instinct or desire. They must practice self-control. They thereby show that homo sapiens is not a mere biological phenomenon. Human beings are not simply naked apes or a gene's way of making another gene. We can transcend the network of causality that sees human behavior as genetically determined a set of responses to stimuli, going back to our idea of cause and effect. Animals have desires, but only humans can engage in second order evaluations, choosing which desires to satisfy and which not. That is the freedom God gave us by making us in his image. Being holy means showing that we have a soul as well as a body, that we have spiritual principles, not just physical appetites. Sigmund Freud held that the mark of civilization was the ability to defer the gratification of instinct. And that's exactly how the sages understood the idea of holiness in human behavior. Okay, just nobody can say it like Rabbi Sachs. So I would, I, next time I wish I, I, I will screen share so that you can follow along because um, I know it's much more meaningful. And then it ends, I am Hashem, your God. Sounds like the first commandment, right, of the Ten Commandments. Is it a commandment? There's no, no, nothing that we have to do, right? But God is stating, I am Hashem, your God, that took you out of Egypt in order that I should be for you as a God, as God. And again, he says, Ani Hashem Elokeichem, if you have any um, <clears throat> difficulty believing who is saying this to us, over thousands and thousands of years, God is saying, it's me, I'm the God who took you out of Egypt. I'm the God of history. 
I'm the God who interacts with you in every moment of your life through Ashkacha Pratis. And I am Hashem, your God, is again pointing to his compassionate, the compassionate expression of God. And the compassion is that I'm also the God who's faithful to reward for compliance and certain to punish for disobedience. No act goes unnoticed. I took you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And as I've said many times, when we left Egypt, we became free. But we didn't really become free because there's no such thing as freedom, right? Everybody's going to serve something. Whether it's yourself or, as Ben Shapiro says, people have a choice of serving three things. It's either going to be the state, the self, or God. There are no other options. Of course, we live in a generation, we said, that definitely worships the self, right? Can I ask a question? Yeah. Go ahead, why, why is it? I thought you were saying five minutes. No, no. I, why is it quantified as the God that took you out of Egypt? God was present for the Jews so much before that portion. Well, wow, that's an incredible question, Marlene. That is an incredible question. And that's a whole class worth. <laughs> I started, I started to, yeah, it is a whole class worth. But in a nutshell, you could ask the question, why doesn't God say, I am the God who created the world? right? I am the God who, who created you. Like, you better listen to me, right? That's our or why is it in the Kiddush, to extend your question, when we sit down on Shabbos, which why do we keep Shabbos? To, to be witnesses to the idea that God created the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day, right? So we say that at the beginning of, of Kiddush, but then we go into this whole thing about, you took us out of Egypt, right? right and you took us out of Egypt so Marlene's question is what's with why do we say that he's the God of who took us out of Egypt so this was a number one this was a um this was a gift of Judaism that no other religion believed in at the time and even today they don't have the same take on it because we believe that God is not just a God who created the world. He's not just the creator, right? There's three definitions for God, creator, sustainer, and supervisor. So everybody believes, you know, the general religions that God created the world. You know, some or most believe that God is the one who keeps the world going. There are religions and ideologies that say, yeah, he created the world, but now he has nothing to do with it. It just runs on its own somehow but the third idea that god is supervisor is a jewish idea that god is involved in history that god is involved in how history goes of extracting one people out of another people literally you know going into egypt and removing this people and taking them out to be kadosh right again separating them for a specific purpose in order to be servants to me, the one God. This was a radical idea. I was just reading by Rabbi Sachs that in the olden days, they all had gods. Every country had gods, but your gods were only the gods over wherever your country was. Once you left and went to another country, there were other gods there. God was not everywhere. 
So when the Jewish people say, let us go and worship our God, what does Pharaoh say? He says, I don't know your God. What do you mean go and worship? I don't know your God. I know the gods here, right? I don't know of any other God except for the gods that are in different places. But the Jews were saying, no, there's one God and he's everywhere. It's not about territory. It's not about as soon as you cross the border, then there's new gods to worship and new types of idol worship and new ways that they do it. But the main point, Marlene, is that we keep going back to this idea that you are the God who took us out of Egypt, right? Even in the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the God who took you out of Egypt, not I am the God who created the world, but I'm the God who took you out of Egypt because I am involved in history. I am involved in making there's much, much more to it that the paradigm of the Jews being taken out of this enslavement and oppression would be the paradigm now for all history of what God wants to happen with all peoples, that no people should ever be oppressed, that no people should be persecuted by some tyrant or dictator, that we should be taking care of the underprivileged, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan. Right now, this philosophy of taking care of the helpless flies in the face of all of the great, powerful tyrants of history. Right. If you read Hitler and eugenics and that they got rid of. I was reading they had a hospital in in Nazi Germany with with all the weak people and the mentally ill. They were the first to be killed. And it wasn't about being Jewish. They were Germans. But he believed that the Jews introduced this idea of, you know, helping the weak and the helpless. That's not how you become strong. You get rid of them. But anyway, Egypt and everything is a whole paradigm for the fact that God detests an oppressive society ruling over a weaker people and enslaving them. And that this would be the model for all of history of what humanity is supposed to get to. But back to the other idea, too, is that God was saying, you're never really free. The only difference between, you know, being slaves to Pharaoh and Egypt is now I'm taking you out to be servants to the, to what's worthwhile being a servant to, to the true God, to the God of the universe, to the God who gave the same laws of, you know, take care of the underprivileged, of the oppressed, the widow. <clears throat> so this idea of leaving Egypt, and that's when we became a nation too, right? Until we left Egypt, we were not a nation. We were just the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We were just a group of people. But it was when we left Egypt that we became God's people that we, you know, you can't separate leaving Egypt from accepting the Torah. We know they're connected by 49 days. <clears throat> and they say Pesach and Shavuot are just two bookends to a long holiday. So the whole purpose of taking us out of Egypt was to make us into God's people. And that's why it's recalled. There's a mitzvah every morning and every, uh, every day, twice a day, to say that, um, um, to fulfill the mitzvah of remembering that we went out of Egypt. It says that while you're actually saying this in the Shema, you should be intending to fulfill the mitzvah of Zechiras Yitzias Mitzrayim, remembering that God took me out of Egypt. We have a whole holiday, Pesach, right? Where we super focus on it. Even though, and, and I think Rabbi Sachs talks about how many times in the Torah it says, why? Because I took you out of Egypt. 
Why should you be nice to the uh, oppressed and the convert? Because you know what it felt like to be strangers in a strange land, right? We know that God purposefully put us in there so that for all time, we would know how it felt to be enslaved and we would never enslave another people, right? There's so many reasons, but the idea, the key point, Marlene, is that the going out of Egypt is so key to our identity as a people and who God, what God wanted us to learn from it, that we recall it all the time. <clears throat> You're actually required to recall the Exodus twice a day, morning and evening. In the morning, you talk about the kindness of Hashem, how he took us out of Egypt. And the idea of evening is to, to, to have faith that the same way God took us out of Egypt, he's going to do it again. He's going to redeem the Jewish people. And it says that whatever happened when he took us out of Egypt is going to pale in comparison. All the miracles, the plagues, whatever, it's going to look like nothing. We're not going to keep Pesach anymore. We're not going to keep the holiday of Pesach anymore because the next Geula, the next redemption is going to be so beyond comprehension that that's the only thing that, we'll that we will remember. We won't sit around the table anymore. The only holiday actually we will keep after Mashiach comes is the holiday of Purim which we'll talk about. You would never imagine that, but really the holiday of Purim is, is greater than Pesach, greater than Yom Kippur, greater than everything. It will be the only holiday that we keep. But Hashem will redeem us. And so in the evening, we say it again, because that evening always represents emunah. In the morning, when things are bright, you can talk about all the good Hashem did, you, did for you. Uh, but at nighttime, when you can't see clearly, and where is Hashem? Why hasn't he brought the Geula? And is he ever going to bring the Geula? And how many Jews have been davening through pogroms and through Holocaust? Come on, Hashem. Get us out of this Egypt. Bring the Geula already. When is it going to happen? That's when we need faith. And it says, why? Because you should remember the day of your departure from the Mitzrayim all the days of your life. And that's a pasuk from Devarim, that this mitzvah, that we have to remember the day of our departure from the land of Egypt, all the days of our life, because that's what made us into a people. That's what made us Am Kadosh, separate from all the nations of the world, because we followed God into this desert. It says the pasuk, I'm not a base Yaakov girl, so I didn't write that test. I don't know it off by heart. But God says, I love you because you followed me into this desert where there was nothing. You came with this promise that somehow I'm going to take care of you, right? With the clouds of glory and the fires at night and how Hashem gave us manna. The Jewish people just threw themselves onto Hashem and said, you know, we're going to this desert with a little bit of matzah. We don't know what's going to happen, but if you're God and you say, come with me, we're going to put our, you know, we're going to bet on you. And that's really the story of the Jewish people. And it's also the idea that enslavement does not mean only to Pharaoh in Egypt. But back to the idea that people can be slaves to all kinds of things. To their work, to their kids, to drugs, to food, to gambling, to lush and hara, to anger, to all kinds of negative traits that we're not able to control. And the message of Egypt is don't be slaves to anyone or anything. Try to make yourself free. Freedom is being able to master your own drives, your own instincts, 
Freedom is the ability to choose right over wrong. Freedom is the ability to say, I put God first before my own desires because God is my creator and my sustainer and my supervisor and has my best interests at heart. Freedom means voluntarily subjugating ourselves to Hashem every single day, right? That's why we have the word Hayom, Hayom in the, in the, in the Shema twice. I'll just end with a, um, Rashi says, sorry, I'll just say this. Why does it repeat? God says, I'm Hashem, your God. It's you out of Egypt to be your God. I am Hashem, your God. Rashi says, why does Hashem repeat that again in the Shema? He said it once. We know every word of the Torah right, is like, there's a reason why it's put there. If it's redundant, it seems redundant, there has to be a reason. So Rashi says, I am Hashem, your God means even against your will, even if you decide, I don't want to be any part of this. I don't want to be part of the Jewish people. I don't want to do the mitzvahs, right? I don't believe in reward and punishment. God is saying, you can't escape reality, right? We, ha we have even a halachic idea that a Jew could try to convert to every religion in the world, but according to Judaism, he is always a Jew. There's no such thing as a Jew becoming something else because his soul is indestructible and he can't change it into something else, even if he doesn't do anything or doesn't even know that he's a Jew, right? In other words, God is saying, this is the reality. Even if you decide you don't want to be part of it, this is reality, you know? <clears throat> Kabbalistically, it means I am Hashem in this world and in the next. And just as I manifest, or it could mean just as I manifested myself during the Exodus, I'm going to do the same at the final redemption. When I ingather all the exiles, I am going to show myself in a way that people never imagined. Listen, we're already seeing Hashem in the world with Ukraine and everything that's going on. If you put on, you know, glasses, which our glasses of the Jew, which are, you know, like a great rabbi said, if you want to know what's going on in the world, just read the Parsha of the week, because the Parsha of the week will tell you, um, you can connect the Parsha always to what's going on, right? And, and the point is, is that, I mean, I, I wish I could tell you this over, I can't remember the numbers, but in this week's Parsha, Rabbi Breitowitz gave over that the number of sockets or something in the uh, Mishkan, the number of Adonim that the sockets of the Mishkan were attached to was some kind of number of um, 5,000 something and something. Anyway, Rabbi Breitowitz said that if you Google the square feet perimeter of Ukraine, it's the exact number of, in the Parsha of the number of sockets in the Mishkan. So. When the rabbi said, you could find what's going on in the world, if you know how to find it, in the Parsha of the week. Don't read the newspaper, read the Parsha. Of course, you read the newspaper too. Of course, we know what's going on. But anyway, it's quite amazing. The point is, back to the last thing I want to say. <clears throat> I did have stuff on the prayers before the Shema and after the Shema. Maybe I'll try to put them into the next class at the very beginning. But um, we do have a law, by the way, when you get to Ani Hashem Elokechem Emet, not to interrupt between the word Emet and the next part, V'yatsi V'nachon V'kayam V'yashar. You're supposed to connect, right? 
those words. Now, um, we get this from the prophet Yirmiyahu, because what it's saying is that Hashem, God, is true, right? And the word emet is a beautiful word, true, right? You have the word aim, which is ima, which is the beginning of life, and met, which is death, right? That God is with us from the very beginning of life until the end of life. This is true, right? You have the idea of emet, the letter aleph is the first letter of the alphabet. The letter tough is the last one. And the letter mem is the middle letter. So we're saying that truth has to be true from beginning to middle to end. You can't say it's kind of true. It's sort of true. Or in this generation that we live in, nothing's true. It's all what you believe or whatever feels good today. That's what's true. What's true for you is not true for me. True for you. You have your own truth. I have my own truth. You made it up. I'll make mine up. There's no such thing as truth. You know, this is the world I grew up in, right? Especially the academic world, the world of existentialism. You know, there's no such thing as truth. It's just meaning that you impute, that you make up so that you won't go insane, so that you can decide that there's some kind of meaning and purpose to life. But otherwise, there really isn't. There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute reality. Your God is your God. My God is my God. This is not Jewish. This is not a Jewish idea. So we're saying... This is God who is the truth, beginning, middle, and end. The Torah has to be true completely, not kind of true, not sort of true, not sometimes true, not in the olden days true, but today irrelevant. True, 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 all the way through. All the way through. Okay. Um, by the way, the words emet, v'yatsiv, v'nachom, v'kayam, v'yashar, v'neman, they all refer back to the 16 verses contained in the first two paragraphs of Shema, including Baruch Shem Kavod, because we're saying that everything that we just read are all these words, right? True, certain, established, enduring, fair, faithful, beloved, cherished. These are the English translations. Um, we're affirming that each verse that we just said is 100% true. Also, we said that there's 248 words in the Shema. So when you're by yourself, you say, Kel Melech Ne'aman, right? Because you want it to be 248. But when you're davening in a minion, you don't say kel melech ne'aman because the chazan at the end says ani Hashem elokechem out loud, which are three words that make it 248 words altogether. Okay, but since you're not in shul when you're by yourself and you don't hear him say it, you have to say kel melech ne'aman. Okay, I don't know exactly how that works, but and the idea is the 248 are the limbs and the muscles in our bodies, which represent the 248 positive mitzvah. Okay, last, last story, Revitzin Jungreis was once on a plane. Everybody knows Revitzin Jungreis. Aleha Shalom, she was a great woman who lived in our generation, a Holocaust survivor, a child of the Holocaust, who you know lived her life to inspire and bring back as many Jews to Judaism as she could. She had a center in New York called Hineni, which was a place where people gathered. She was famous for speaking in Madison Square Garden to a sold out crowd of Jews, I think sometime in the 60s or 70s, you know, to bring back Jews to their Judaism. Anyway, there's a story that she's on a, a plane to uh, either coming home or going, coming home from Portland, Oregon. And she's trying to relax. No, she's probably going there to give a speech. And she's, you know, trying to relax and everything else on the plane. 
And this man next to her strikes up a conversation. And of course it ends up that he's Jewish, right? And uh, then the food comes. And of course, you know, she's got her kosher food and he has not ordered kosher. He's eating his tray food. So, you know, he's opening up his package and he's just about to take a bite. And Robinson Youngbrae says to him, you can't eat that. And she said, he says, sorry, what? He said, she said, you can't eat that. And he says, what are you talking about? And she said, well, I, you know, I saw you at Mount Sinai. I saw you there. And I remember you, you were there with me and you said, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do the tour. I'm not going to eat. I'm only going to eat kosher. Anyway, he's like, um, you're crazy. I mean, you know, leave me alone. I I'm going to eat this, right? Anyway, so he starts eating it. And of course, she's, she's like tisking away. And she goes, I don't know. I remember you promised. I remember you said that you, you know, you said you weren't going to eat that. that you're going to keep the Torah. That you're going to keep the mitzvahs. Anyway, he's trying to ignore her. He's eating his meal. She obviously stops saying anything. She's worried she's going to get punched in the nose. Anyway, meanwhile, she says that the story goes that they get off the plane. They're at the baggage place. And he comes over to it and he says to her again, he goes, you know, lady, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. Okay. And, 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 you know, you shouldn't be talking to people like this. It's not normal. Right. Anyway, he, she kept, she just shrugged her shoulders and she says, I'm sorry, but you know, I am telling you, I saw you and I remember you said, you know, you, you were going to keep the Torah. Anyway, it turns out that this guy who was just like, you know, totally furnished by this woman who he's kept calling her crazy Turns out that years later, he comes <clears throat> to the Hineni in Manhattan, and he's dressed in a black hat and a black suit. <laughs> and he goes over to Robinson Youngreis, and he says, hi, do you remember me? And Robinson Youngreis always gave her trademark line when people would come up to her and say this. She would say, and this is a good one for anybody who doesn't know what to say. When people say this to you, she would say, you look familiar. Okay. But you know, she met lots of people that are like, anyway, so he says to her, Portland, Oregon. And she goes, what? And he goes, I was that guy sitting next to you on the plane. He said, you know, I thought you were absolutely Meshugana. And of course I was very rude and disrespectful. And I have to, you know, beg your apology, but after I got off the plane and I got home, it got me thinking, and I actually got myself a Bible, a Torah, whatever, and I decided to look it up, you know, this whole story about, you know, Mount Sinai and Jews and the Torah and this and that, and he said, and it's because of you that I read it, and it took me, you know, to this class and to that class and from one person to the next person until here I am today. And I just wanted to come back to you and let you know that you changed my life. So <clears throat> the end of the story, ladies, is that the Shema prayer is supposed to keep us, you know, aligned with Hashem, realize our purpose in this world, recognize that when we recite the Shema, we align ourselves with our purpose of existence and remind ourselves of what our mission is in this world. So God willing, may we all be successful in this mission. We're all on a journey. 
Everybody begins in a different place. Everybody's journey is different. But Hashem loves our efforts. Again, it's not according. The reward is not according to the results. The reward is always according to the efforts. And Hashem loves the fact that we're learning together, that we're trying to become better, that we have to constantly fight against our very, you know, walking contradictions is what I call human beings. But we keep on trying and we want to keep our eyes on the ball. And that's what these classes are about. So thank you for joining me and have a wonderful week. Shavua Tov. And we should hear good news from Ukraine. And uh, it should be a zahus for them that we're learning today.